0: This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. I'm Ryan Warner. The suicide of a nine-year-old boy in Denver who was bullied at school raises questions about how seriously schools take harassment. Jamel Miles was a fourth grader who'd recently come out as gay. CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundin is following this story and joins us. Hi, Jenny. Hi, Ryan. You've been trying to get Denver Public Schools to answer some of your questions, uh, but so far I understand they've only released a statement.
1: Yes, uh, we don't know real specifics about the kinds of training and things like that, teachers at that school had, what exactly happened, but they released this statement, our deepest sympathies go out to Jamel Miles' family and the entire Shoemaker community, that's the name of the school. At DPS, we're deeply committed to ensuring that all members of our school community are treated with dignity and respect, regardless of sexual orientation, gender identity, or transgender status. And they go on to say that we as a society uh, have a long way to go to ensure that no child is ever bullied or treated with disrespect because of their self-identification. All of us parents, educators, and fellow students need to lead the way in setting an example of love, respect, and dignity for our LGBTQ youth.
0: Indeed, a fourth grader at Joe Shoemaker Elementary School in Denver, and I think, Jenny, many in the community trying to wrap their heads around the idea of a nine-year-old hanging himself in his bedroom. Uh, A tough thing to wrap your mind around.
1: Very, very, very
0: tragic. Aside from what schools are doing, LGBTQ advocates hope teachers and parents will also seek out resources in light of Jamel's death.
1: Yes. uh, Stay tuned. We're about to hear a feature story where we get into a lot of things about what teachers can do. But there's also another organization, the nonprofit One Colorado. Daniel Ramos heads it up, and he says more than 80 percent of Colorado school districts have an anti-bullying policy that's compliant with state law. But anti-bullying training for teachers isn't required. And he says what's really key is that teachers... Establish a school culture of inclusivity of LGBTQ students.
2: The message
3: is really for educators to take incidents of bullying seriously and for parents to be having conversations with their children and also with the school to make sure that everyone is in communication about what experience young people are having in schools.
1: One Colorado has lots of resources to help teachers and parents learn how to intervene when students bully LGBTQ classmates. Nine out of 10 LGBTQ students report verbal harassment in schools. That's a really high figure. And six in 10 report physical harassment.
0: Yes, plenty of evidence to show that LGBTQ kids and those who don't identify as male or female are more likely to be bullied at school, miss class, and uh, given what we're talking about this morning, even consider suicide.
1: You know, Ryan, what was surprising to me when I went to a conference that we're about to hear about is the number of teachers who say they haven't intervened in anti-gay bullying because they just don't know what to say or they think if they intervene, it's going to make it worse. In the summer, I attended a conference designed to help and support teachers make their classrooms inclusive of LGBTQ students. Uh, Advocates call it queering the classroom. The goal is to make a classroom, a safe and affirming place for all kids.
0: Well, why don't we hear a little bit more about what you learned and saw at that conference?
1: Lisa Durant is just hours into a recent conference, and she's already mastered some new terminology. CIS,
0: yes, Um, binary, non-binary, the umbrella of a transgender, pan
1: The health and physical education teacher from the Adams 12 Five Star District in the North Denver suburbs says her students are using words um,
0: asexual or gender fluid, and I had no
4: idea what they were talking about.
1: She thought she'd better figure it out. And that's the goal of Queer Endeavor, an initiative from CU Boulder's School of Education. It helps teachers navigate the topics.
3: This has come up a lot, how we do gender.
1: Bethy Leonardi has some answers. She's one of the co-founders of A Queer Endeavor, the conference sponsors.
3: Really, really trying to get rid of boys, girls, ladies and gentlemen.
1: Leonardi offers some alternatives to teachers who say, boys and girls, what about listen up scholars or hey, first graders? Other ideas? Allowing kids to name and identify themselves and their pronouns instead of calling role. Queer Endeavor's Sarah Staley asks teachers to imagine LGBTQ students walking into their classrooms this fall.
5: How does that change the way that you call role? How does that change the posters that you put on the wall? The kinds of books and stories you choose to read? Who becomes really visible in your curriculum and who's, whose voices are left out?
1: Other suggestions noticing when a student experiments with gender expression, putting up safe zone posters in the classroom and telling kids what they mean, using curriculum to talk about differences. Will you make a blue ocean for my boat? I can't, I'm red. Books like this one about a blue Kranz identity crisis, when it's mistakenly identified as red, sparks dialogue in Boulder science teacher Jack Gantz's classrooms. He's been working on these issues for several years, and it's delicate work. In sixth grade, he introduces students to the isms, like racism, sexism, and words like homophobia. makes
0: the invisible visible, and suddenly you're getting a lot more of like, whoa, I never noticed all the things that people are saying.
1: He says the conversations initially can be messy. Some kids may be uncomfortable, even resistant. But Gantz gently helps the class work through topics in ways that make them comfortable.
3: Whose voices aren't being heard? And maybe even... Connecting this with decisions being made in your school, decisions being made in your classroom.
1: In another conference room, science teacher Megan Mosier tells educators science class is a great place to teach, as Scientific American calls it, the new science of sex that shows, to varying extents, many of us are biological hybrids on a male-female continuum. Every time a prefix comes up...
3: So things like cis, trans, homo, hetero, bi...
1: Mosure talks about what those terms really mean on lessons on chromosomes X and Y.
3: When I first introduced this in my classroom, one of my students was like, oh, is that what makes you gay? Like, kids want to know, is there something specific that has this result? And so honoring those questions, making it a space in which they can ask those, but also providing clarification.
1: And for all teachers, Mosure says educators should use class as a time to talk about what's appropriate and what's not.
3: Language, I still hear that so gay. A slur. So frequently from my students, I was like little fires, putting them out, and then finally addressed it as a classroom. Brought my own identity into it, and that was the thing that ended it. A
1: familiar complaint among LGBTQ students is that many teachers, some here admit it, don't intervene when kids are being bullied or when classmates utter slurs. Recent high school graduate Asher Cutler, who identifies as gender fluid, says the fear is understandable, but... Don't fear that. Go for it, please. Your role as an authoritative figure means that you can save someone's life. And as teachers are mandatory reporters, they have to report things that are like self-harming. These comments are the little things that
5: build up over time and you have to, as a teacher, say, no, we don't talk like that in my classroom.
1: Asher Cutler says when a teacher makes their classroom a safe place where a student isn't bullied for an hour out of the day, it's important.
0: CPR's education reporter Jenny Brundine, and she's back in the studio with us. And Jenny, there might be parents listening who think, gosh, these topics obviously connect to sex and sexuality. Could it be too soon, too early in my child's life to, to talk about some of this stuff?
1: Yes. And advocates and uh, teacher trainers will say uh, one topic is gender identity, which really doesn't deal with sexuality at all. These mm. are you know kids that might be gender fluid and are thinking, you know, I don't know if I'm really ma- masculine or feminine or uh, but but i met a school psychologist at the elementary school level in jefferson county who came to the conference and she says she often hears from adults who say it's not appropriate to talk about this with kids but she says they know she's had kids as early as uh, you know 4th and 5th grade who come out to her and or questioning who they are, and she wrote down in her little notebook a phrase she learned at the conference that families and children's identities are not controversial. So what it comes down to is their children, they know, it's important that we validate and acknowledge that experience because they do know we need to make sure that schools are welcoming space for everyone.
0: This idea that identities are not controversial. Is it possible that kids are ahead of their teachers on this topic?
1: Yes, I think, you know, starting a few years ago, we've entered into a new era where teenagers and young people are really defining gender identity, redefining gender identity and sexuality. So I know that's very new for a lot of people, but there are increasingly kids at high schools who call themselves gender fluid. They don't fit into one box or another, or pronouns have become a big thing to, you know, and they encourage teachers, maybe at the beginning of the year, introduce yourself as she, uh, her, and hers. uh, Whereas some kids, especially if they're transgender, prefer a they pronoun, um, or sorry, gender fluid, prefer a they pronoun. And it's really difficult for teachers to try to remember to do that. But kids say uh, it's, It's really core to who they are. Um, So teachers are really playing catch up on this. And I think a lot of parents are as well.
0: This is a story we'll continue to follow in light of the suicide of a nine-year-old, Jamel Miles, at uh, Joe Shoemaker Elementary School in Denver. He hanged himself in his bedroom uh, last Thursday. Uh, Lots more questions for the district and to what extent they're offering training Uh, around the question of LGBTQ students. Thanks so much, Jenny.
1: Thank you, Ryan.
0: She's our education reporter. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News. It has been called the Magna Carta of AIDS activism. Some say it changed healthcare forever, and it was written in Denver in 1983, early in the AIDS epidemic. This year marks the 35th anniversary of the Denver Principles. Richard Berkowitz was one of the activists who flew to Denver from New York for the health conference where these principles were created and read aloud. Hi, Richard. Hi. The first diagnosis in Colorado, came just a year before this conference. But in San Francisco and in New York, where you lived, AIDS was reaching epidemic proportions. Just take us to that time. Do you remember being afraid?
6: I remember being so terrified that I would um, try to keep denying that something terrible was unfolding, that something terrible uh, within the gay community was starting to... um, unravel. And what little was known about it was terrifying that it was essentially gay men in their 20s and 30s who were being struck with a variety of illnesses. Um, The government estimated that the lifetime expectancy of a person diagnosed with this new disease was 16 months. Um, In the beginning, you kind of like overlooked the articles or that you saw in the gay press and didn't read them. And you tried to deny that what was happening would affect you. The argument was, um, more gay men will die in car accidents than will die of this new disease, so don't let it ruin your life. But then I started to experience some of the symptoms, and I knew what they were from brochures that were being placed in gay bars around New York City. And then what happens is stories start to circulate among the urban gay grapevine. Someone you knew knew someone who died of the disease in a horrible way. Then someone you knew was sick and in the hospital and dead a week later. And then suddenly you realize you were experiencing some of the symptoms. I had night sweats and swollen glands. So I finally had a close friend that died and that propelled me to go to my doctor. I was very lucky my doctor wasn't just a doctor, he was um, a a research scientist. So I went to him in a panic, I was afraid I wouldn't survive and he said to me, nothing about this disease is simple. Um, whatever's happening is obviously sexually transmittable. We don't exactly know what causes it, but it's hard to not believe that the urban gay uh, sexual lifestyle of the last 15 years um, doesn't have something to do with either spreading it or contributing to it. So my advice to you is stop having sex, which I did, And in that time, I went to work in his office and learned a lot about the disease. And my doctor was very big on patients informing themselves and finding out, you know, what was happening, how to read the literature, to be skeptical of what was told. My doctor kept saying, there are no experts, but we have to learn as we go along. My goodness. And And that really put... Yeah, yeah. I
0: I think this is remarkable because there was so little known. I mean, I, I just want to remind people that before the name AIDS was chosen for this disease. It was called GRID, gay-related immune disease, which might today seem absurd. But so little was known. There was so much stigma, so much connection to specific communities. And it was against this backdrop that the National Gay and Lesbian Health Conference took place in Denver. I want to note that AIDS was not the headliner. They were going to talk about things like alcoholism, And you and almost a dozen others, some from New York, some from San Francisco, raised money to go and, I suppose, change the focus.
6: Yeah. What happened was uh, some gay men in the 1970s were well aware of the feminist critiques of healthcare, you know, the way the medical industry had marginalized and sometimes even brutalized women, minorities, poor people, gay men, in the name of science. And the biggest thing that happened before the conference was that the American Psychiatric Association had, for decades, considered gayness an illness. And in 1973, confronted by a lesbian and gay activist, we got them to change that, to stop calling being gay a mental diagnosis. And while that was a great victory, it left a lot of gay people, a lot of gay men, lesbians, very skeptical skeptical and distrusting of the medical establishment. So when AIDS came along, we were suddenly thrust back into their arms because of this new disease. And a lot of gay men who were aware of the recent history were not trusting. And the only thing you could do in a situation like that was try to educate yourself and find out as much as you can. So when this conference, it was the second National AIDS Forum the third third national gay health, gay and lesbian health conference, activists in San Francisco sent out a call to the gay media to have people, they'd show up at the conference because they felt that we had something from our own experiences that was valuable, that can contribute to any kind of discussion about how to battle AIDS. And that turned out to be uh, history-changing.
0: History-changing, which we'll talk about, these Denver principles. Um, you you are gay you were a sex worker yes. you were hiv yes. positive a yes. kind of trifecta of stigma before we talk about these principles how were you received at the conference in denver
6: oh uh, my my friend michael callan and i who also had aids had just published how to have sex in an epidemic which was you know today it's considered the invention of safe sex guidelines huh. so it was actually quite controversial in its day but People, the early gay men who were diagnosed with this disease, were so stigmatized. People were, you know, asked by their roommates to leave. One was thrown out of his apartment. People were being beaten up. People were losing their jobs. I mean, it was so isolating. And part of that was that it was so terrifying what we knew about AIDS, and so little was known. And though history books keep telling us about how the country reacted and scapegoated gay men with AIDS, a lot of the fear was in in our own community ourselves. So the fact that people came in with AIDS from both coasts, showed up in Denver at this conference, and we started sharing our experiences, um, we realized the depth of value that our experiences – well, it's a resource that could help the community. At the close, of, at the once clo- you start, yeah. yeah.
0: At the close of this conference, your group was given the floor. You take turns reading this document called the Denver Principles. I'm reading it right now. We'll post this later today at CPR.org. You had composed it on site, and it starts this way. I'm going to read: We condemn attempts to label us as victims, a term which implies defeat. And we are only occasionally patients, a term which implies passivity, helplessness, and dependence upon the care of others. We are, you proclaimed, people with AIDS. And that has indeed been called a pivotal moment in the AIDS movement. Why?
6: Because it was the invention of AIDS activism, and it inspired uh, other healthcare movements to look at what we had created with this document. And to change and alter and focus the way their actions and their activism would go. We wanted people diagnosed with a disease to have a, a say in, in what decisions were made that would affect their lives. We wanted people diagnosed with the disease to play a role in policy-making decisions and to have a voice in whatever um, was being done to address a particular illness. And that's resonated around the world, that people need to get informed that you need a doctor that will answer your questions. And if they won't, then get another doctor. Huh. So that, that's really resonated around the world. And 35 years later, it's been recognized by world governments, the United Nations, the World Health Organization. And it really has, um, I think, moved the human race forward in terms of what to do when you're confronted with uh, an illness.
0: The Denver Principles also included recommendations for people with AIDS. And as you say, it pointed to activism. It says, get, get involved at every level that you can. And it said, uh, we feel people with AIDS have an ethical responsibility to inform their potential sexual partners of their health status. Uh, and so in, in some ways, this was also an ethical framework for those living with HIV AIDS.
6: Yes, and it was a parallel to coming out in the 70s you know that you have to be honest about where you are you have to be honest with your sexual partners about your situation and you know if it's not just um what poses a health risk to me the question also has to be what poses a health risk to my partner and i think that was a revolutionary idea that just everyone felt but it just needed to be said and stated
0: you're listening to Colorado Matters. I'm Ryan Mourner. My guest is AIDS activist Richard Berkowitz. This year marks the 35th anniversary of the Denver Principles, a list of patients' rights written in Denver in 1983 that shaped not only the AIDS movement, but some say changed healthcare forever. I want to say that new HIV cases were down slightly in Colorado in 2017 after rising the year before. Uh, a large majority of the diagnoses are in Metro Denver. And, um, Richard, the, the Denver principles uh, demand that people with AIDS be treated with respect, that they not be blamed for their condition. And yet a survey done recently by the Denver Public Health Department shows that a majority do blame people who are infected with HIV, especially if they got it by injecting drugs. And so all these years later, uh, the stigma persists. so. Huh?
6: Yes, the stigma persists. Tragically, most of the gay men who were at the Denver conference were gone two years later. Oh. The sadness is that the people who had so much to offer and learned the hard lessons, you know, are no longer with us to help inform and educate a new generation. And that's really sad. That's really sad. I mean, I healthcare is a huge issue in our country right now. And I believe the more access there is to health care, the better off we'll all be.
0: Indeed, there is an image of you at the conference in Denver. It's you and 10 other activists. You unfurled a banner that proclaimed, Fighting for Our Lives. We'll have this image at CPR.org. And you are uh, the only one of the 11 who survived.
6: Yes. You know, I just, I didn't give up. I didn't buy into all of the pessimism. I believe that adopting safe sex practices was something proactive that I could do that made me feel really good, feel good, not just about protecting myself, but my partners. And um, I'm still here 35 years later.
0: Do you ever wonder why me?
6: Um, No, but I don't always agree with mainstream discourse on AIDS. I think AIDS is more complicated than we've been led to believe. And I believe that in those nuances is how I managed to survive.
0: What would you change about the discussion around AIDS, if you could?
6: A more honest discussion about sexuality and about the sexual... Not all sexual practices put one at risk rates, but there's this idea it's a virus and one exposure and you're a ticking time bomb or that you need to go on meds. I always believed that other sexually transmitted viruses um, can impact your immunological health. And so I didn't buy into the fear. I believed I was doing something <clears throat> that could protect myself. and. I just wish we'd have more honest discussions about that. I want to, but you know, you're... the problem is the problem. Last thing I want to say: there's never been money in safe sex education. There's always been money in medication, and I think that's where we've lost part of the battle.
0: Cool. thanks so much for your perspective, Richard. These many years later. Thank you. Rich, Richard Berkowitz was among a small group of AIDS activists who attended a 1983 gay and lesbian healthcare conference in Denver. The document they presented, known as the Denver Principles, continues to affect healthcare today. And as I said, we'll post those principles in full at CPR.org. All right, let's get your feedback now in loud and clear. On Monday, we ran a story that seems to have struck a nerve about how Colorado perceives California and Californians. It was sparked in part by an election ad this year. Ratic- California?
6: That's what you get when you bring radical left-wing
4: policies to your state.
0: On top of being used as a political weapon, California's become a scapegoat for Colorado's growing pains. But some of you think California is to blame. Here's Glenn Colton of Fort Collins.
1: Many Coloradans are sick of the constant growth in the state, which is turning us into something resembling the overcrowded urban areas of California. The root cause is population growth, fueled by mass immigration, which is overwhelming
0: California and creating an exodus to other states like Colorado. But I'll underscore something we heard from Colorado's state demographer, that quite a few Coloradans moved to California, too. It works both ways. Twitter user at Patriot 205 writes, I think a greater danger is for residents being divided when we should unite to protect our valuable land. I was blessed to be born here, and they were blessed to have moved here. And Jerry Petri tweets, With average house prices at, million, at a million-plus across entire counties in California, the nation should be talking now about California transplants. On the good side, Californians pick up after their dogs. Now, CPR can't independently verify that last fact, but we hope it's true. Continue the conversation online. We're at Colorado Matters on Twitter and CPR News on Facebook. A same-sex couple asks a conservative baker to make their wedding cake sound familiar? In this case I'm not talking about the masterpiece cake shop ruling from the Supreme Court this summer. I'm talking about a play opening at Curious Theater this week. It's called The Cake. Curious Theater's Chip Walton directs the show and Emma Messenger plays the baker. Welcome to you both.
7: Thanks.
5: Thank Glad you.
0: So the baker's name is Della. She lives in North Carolina and has strong Southern Baptist values. Someone fairly close to Della, a character named Jen asks her to bake a cake for her wedding. Della is thrilled until Della realizes that Jen is marrying another woman. Chip, what can you say about what drove the playwright to write this play? Her name is uh, Becca Brunstetter.
7: Well, Becca grew up in North Carolina in a pretty conservative family environment. And her dad was a politician uh, in North Carolina, and he supported the 2011 Defense of Marriage Act, or Amendment 1. And this was really a turning point for Becca, as she felt like she she couldn't um, ignore this issue either within herself or her family any longer. Um, so that's in large part what fueled this play, challenging our assumptions about people who hold different beliefs than us, and also this kind of uh, hope that if we treat everyone with kindness and respect and a slice of cake, maybe we can still have fellowship with people you fundamentally disagree with.
0: It's interesting. uh, You could interpret this quite literally and say, oh, she wrote this because of the masterpiece Cake Shop case. But in fact, uh, this had been stirring in her for some time before.
7: Absolutely. In fact, there are parts of this play that she wrote when she was 22, like over 10 or 15 years ago. So Uh um, I I definitely think it has a, um, a relationship to what's happening right now, but it's been brewing for a long time.
0: Why did you want to include the cake in Curious Theater season?
7: Well, I, I think, uh, particularly in Colorado, it's it's uh, kind of a, a ripped from the headlines issue that's at the front of all of our minds. Um, but I also think, you know, it, it really speaks to uh, this kind of crazy moment in uh, America right now, where I think it's so divided, and it seems to be so hard to have conversations across the proverbial aisle. And um, this play asks, presents the possibility, maybe maybe that's still possible.
0: And it really does delve into the mind of the baker. So here's an excerpt from a monologue that Della has early in the play. Uh, in this case, it's performed by the actor who premiered the role, Deborah Jo Rupp. Uh, she's musing on cakes.
2: Devil's food gets its name from angel food cake, which is vanilla.
5: Add a little chocolate and you got yourself something sinful. <laughs> but do not be deceived it is filled with angel saliva and good deeds this cake is not sin it's a reward see I think God created butter and sugar as rewards for us for our good choices for sticking to what's right no matter how much the world changes because the world's going to change but we cannot we must follow the directions till we die. Right?
0: So, Emma, tell us more about the character you play, Della. Do you, do you like her?
5: I love her, but it's my job to love her. Um, so it's uh, it, it's kind of a difficult thing when you, you're presented with a character that is so far from your own personal philosophy. So I had to really... Um, find a way into Della and I I started to realize this is a much more complicated issue than I had at first thought and because at first I was so on the side of uh, the couple who was getting married and how horrible it was to be rejected over this celebration of love and then I talked to some bakers and began to realize that they're making these cakes. It's it's their artistry, and how would I feel if I was asked, for example, to do a voiceover for a very uh, right wing political campaign or something like that, where I was lending my artistry to something I didn't believe in? And that was kind of my through way into this this um, woman who who was so different from me. Um,
0: And I think this is the argument that's often made among conservatives, which is, why should someone on the left or right uh, be forced to take part in speech, in artistry, if that's mm -hmm. how you see your cake making, that they don't agree with? Uh, So, my goodness, I wonder if you did you change your mind on
5: this topic? (laughs) No, (laughs) I didn't but it was a window into into this this thought process and no i didn't change my mind i think that um, it is a very clear case of of discrimination and that we have to have laws to protect people otherwise um, you you could say well i'm not going to allow uh, african americans into my restaurant or i'm not going to do you know whatever.
0: Um, How do you answer it for yourself, though? I love the idea that you just raised. If you were asked to do a voiceover for a group whose politics you don't believe in.
5: Yeah, I would say no. I would have to say no. So you'd make the
0: same decision as the baker.
5: Yes, in that situation, I would. And that's sort of the struggle. The difference between... What Della is facing, though, and, and what the Jack, the masterpiece baker, faced, is that Della has a personal relationship with this, um, this young woman who is getting married. And that causes her to reassess her own beliefs. Um,
0: yeah, I think this is a really fascinating part yeah. of the, the cake that's with this production at Curious theater company is called the idea that the baker and the client have a personal relationship chip how do you think that changes the narrative
7: well i I think it changes the narrative in so far as um you know I, i i don't think in the masterpiece cake um case anybody expects anybody else's mind to change Right, But when you know somebody, when you have a personal relationship with them, when you've grown up with them, when, when they're basically a part of your family, um, you know, it, it, it reframes the question, when was the last time you changed somebody's mind? Or, or maybe even more important, when was the last time somebody changed your mind? And I think it's, it's, a, it's a different context for that when you're talking about two strangers and you're talking about two people that really love each other and care about each other.
0: The owner of the Masterpiece Cake Shop in Lakewood has filed another lawsuit uh, against the state. In this case, his bakery turned down making a cake for a transgender woman who'd requested a pink cake with blue frosting to celebrate her transition. And so this tension in society continues. Emma, what would you say to people who may call Della a a bigot or say that she is small-minded? I wonder if you've heard that from audiences
5: i think she is i think she absolutely is small-minded and has not you know there's at one point in the play where she is so thrilled to meet somebody from new york her life has been uh lived in a very uh cloistered way um and the best thing to defeat racism is travel um and she has not traveled, so I think people that that are born and live and die in the same town, um, I hope they read, because it's very difficult to to sort of expand your world and expand your um, your tolerance of other people if you haven't. You know, I think the key is exposure.
7: But I, but I think with even if she has a small mind, the, the great thing that Becca does is she has an enormous heart. Exactly, and so that makes it a very complicated story. In the, a good The way. playwright
0: has said in interviews that she hopes to humanize conservative values. And Chip, I can imagine people hearing uh, what Emma said there, and, and you know, thinking, "Boy, that sounds like coastal elitism to me."
7: <laughs> Do you think that this brings up those topics? No, I'm, I'm going to be I'm going to be really honest, and I'm going to tell you that this play has been very challenging for me because um, it doesn't. It really challenges my own assumption. It doesn't confirm them. It, you know, I think right now we are all um, stuck in feedback loops a lot of the time that just basically, you know, confirm what we believe and, and, and deepen our, our belief system. And this play really has forced me to sort of figure out how to love Della <laughs> and how and, and how to kind of recognize the possibility of common ground with people whom I fundamentally disagree with. So this play is not this. In fact, um, I've said to several people, if you have a conservative friend and you want to bring him to the night, a night at the theater, this is the play to do it. Mm -hmm. Do it. okay? (laughs) Or, uh, yes, thanks for being with us to both of you.
0: It's been fascinating to dig into your minds on this. Thanks for having us. So we heard from Chip Walton. He's producing artistic director at Curious Theater and actress Emma Messenger. She stars in The Cake which gets its regional premiere in Denver Saturday. It runs through mid-October. A second Denver business has landed a social marijuana license. At Vape and Play, customers will be able to consume pot while they play video games. Owner Taylor Rosian says the city notified him late last week.
3: There wasn't too much time for celebrating because, uh, we had a really positive reaction from the local business community. So I've been actually spending a lot of time just working overtime, getting, getting those relations ironed
7: out. It's very exciting.
0: Vape & Play plans to open in the fall. The fact that it's only the second business to get a social marijuana consumption license under Denver's voter-approved program points to how strict licensing is. Well, earlier this year, I visited the first and only other place to be certified. It's in the La Alma-Lincoln Park neighborhood, and it's called the Coffee Joint. I have to say, this is not where I'd expect a coffee shop to be. We are literally right next to I-25 through central Denver. It's a pretty industrial area, not walkable, railroad tracks not too far away, and, gosh, no trees or any real sense of neighborhood. We'll have to figure out why this is the location they chose when we go in.
4: Well, welcome to the coffee joint. We're the first licensed social consumption cannabis club. Inside of here, you guys are allowed to consume THC edibles. You can also vape flour, wax, and oil. If you have a vape pen, you can bring that in or you can pick one up here. And lastly, you're allowed to dab concentrates in here.
0: But I can't smoke.
4: No smoking is allowed due to the Colorado Clean Air Act, so we don't allow any open flame or any torches inside.
0: Just like a restaurant can't allow you to smoke anywhere in Colorado. Correct. After scanning my driver's license, Laney Nickerson hands me a waiver. I don't sign it since I won't be getting high, but customers essentially agree they're responsible for their own behavior. Then we take a look around. I'm seeing all kinds of Snacks for sale, but these are not marijuana snacks.
4: Everything in the coffee joint is uninfused. There is no THC in any of our products in the coffee joint. Why is that? That is against our license. So we do not have any THC for sale in here, only at the dispensary. Um, This is just a social consumption venue.
0: Point is that you bring your own marijuana and you actually can get it next door because the business owns the dispensary next door. Correct. Beyond the front retail space is a big room with foosball and ping pong. They also do ganja yoga here. And there's a conference room for dabbing, that is heating and inhaling sticky THC oil. Three young men sit around a table watching TV and getting high. Alfredo, what brought you here today?
3: Um, just a nice atmosphere, you know. It was really relaxed and, you know, it was pretty nice to have a place to consume conveniently.
0: That's not your home, for
3: instance, I guess. Yeah, of course.
0: Now, why why not consume at home? That's where most people have to consume marijuana in Colorado, because there aren't a ton of these places around.
3: Well, it was more out of curiosity that I came here, because, yeah, you do bring up a very good point. It's just an atmosphere around here, and meeting a lot of new people is really fun.
0: Were you expecting more people?
3: I mean, I usually expect it to be probably sometimes mellow, and it gets busier on the weekends, though, for sure. <coughs> Oh, yeah, it's packed in here on on the weekends. The weekend of 420, there was about 50 people in here just hanging out, all from different states, from different countries. It was pretty dope.
0: Then a couple from out of town walks in. Well, we actually uh, have recently relocated to Southern California. We're in the cultivation business. Thought it would be interesting to come out and check out one of the first legal consumable lounges in,
4: in the country.
7: Is
0: it something you hope to emulate in California? Absolutely. Yeah,
7: definitely. We're, we're actually looking at the process of opening a few lounges in Southern California as we speak.
0: Indeed, some California cities have legalized pot lounges. In San Francisco, they can actually sell THC products, too, unlike here. And Colorado Governor John Hickenlooper recently vetoed a bill that would have allowed tasting rooms in existing dispensaries. He had safety concerns, saying it could mean more intoxicated driving. One other Denver business was close to getting a social consumption license, but it was denied for being too close to a daycare center. Advocates for public consumption say there are just too many rules to make the business model work. Rita Salouk is a co-owner of the coffee joint. Why did you decide to get into this business? And something that really is brand new, the idea of consumption on site.
2: Well, we were following the idea of social consumption for a long time, about three years since they started talking about it. And we have a dispensary next door. And this uh, space became available. At the same time, uh, social consumption opened the door at Denver, and we thought it's perfect fit.
0: What are some of the rules that you have to follow? I know that you can't have people smoking on site.
2: Well, we cannot have any visitors that younger than 21 years old. We cannot be visible from the public. That's why we, you see those uh, separators by the windows.
0: There are soji screens in the window, and that means that people can't look in and see what's happening.
2: Right. We cannot be close to schools. We cannot be close to par- some parks and recreation centers. But this area was al- already a in very industrial area. We're already 1,000 feet from school. We already measured that for dispensary, so it was easy.
0: That is, clearing the locational hurdles for the dispensary meant you'd already cleared many of them for the lounge. Now, the city does require that you have a training manual for employees. Tell me some of the things that are in that and how you've trained your employees.
2: Since we're so new and nobody else ever done it before, we created that training manual, kind of copying it from the liquor business, changed it to marijuana and make it appropriate where we could, And we're planning to modify it as we understand it better and moving forward.
0: So what kinds of rules carry over from the liquor business?
2: Make sure that you establish connection with your customer. Make sure you understand your customer. And also, if you think that they're breaking any rules, you have to let them know, you have to call police, you have to do something about it.
0: Who are your customers? What do you notice about where they come from, who they are?
2: There's a lot of tourists, and some of the tourists, they come in with their bags from a DIA, staying here, consuming, and going back to DIA because they had layover in Denver.
0: Have you ever had problems with customers or had to call the police?
2: We never had to call police from this establishment. Next door, we had one case when a person was trying to purchase over the legal limits and was insisting on that. And then over here, we had a couple people that didn't feel good. And uh, we still not sure what happened to them, if it was just tourists. They couldn't adjust to Denver's altitude. But we just had to give them water, and we had to... Uh, just make them comfortable. And for one of them, we called ambulance, but I think they both of them just fine. Then we uh, decide to put a sign that if you don't feel well and you feel like you overconsume, please let us know and we'll help you out. And we can help them out, situate them here, give them water, make them feel better, and maybe call Uber for them or get them a ride with their friends.
0: I'm glad you mentioned that because I thought about the fact that a lot of the people who consume here might then get in a car and be driving high. Talk about that.
2: Well, a uh, railroad station is 10 minutes away walking, and we, see, we had some walking traffic here. And uh, we also had people that coming in the Uber, especially tourists. And a lot of times we have a group of people where one person does not con- not consume, and they the ones who designate a driver.
0: So, where is your accent from?
2: My accent from Kyiv, Ukraine. It's a Russian accent.
0: And tell me how you got to Colorado and got into this business.
2: Well, I got to co- into Colorado 28 years ago. And I wasn't in the drug industry. I was civil engineer, computer programmer, real estate broker. And then as one of my ventures, my clients offered me to become a part of the business. And that's how it started about four years ago. And it took me a while to adjust and to become a big proponent versus being opponent for so many years.
0: You were a marijuana opponent in Ukraine?
2: Oh, in Ukraine it's any kind of drugs completely prohibited and out of the questions. Marijuana is one of them.
0: You've had to blaze the trail of, uh, of this business.
2: Yes, we are the first ones and a lot of things we're just trying on and see how it fits.
0: Well, just last month, a city task force agreed it may be too tough for businesses to get licenses for social marijuana use. Members of that task force hope to deliver a report this fall to the city council on the progress of the pilot program and will likely recommend changes. Finally today, we've been inviting Colorado bands to record their favorite songs from 1968, as we mark 50 years since that pivotal time in U.S. history, a year of war, protests, assassinations, and, alongside all the turmoil, spectacular music. Well, Todd Lilienthal plays banjo in the Denver Bluegrass band The Lonesome Days. For him, the decision of which song to record was easy. "Susie Q by Creedence Clearwater Revival. His dad actually had a personal history with CCR, even appeared on a solo album by Tom Fogarty in the 1980s. Tom Fogarty, older brother to CCR frontman and songwriter John Fogarty, was the group's rhythm guitarist and was no stranger around the Lilienthal household.
7: Every kid has that adult that comes over to the house and plays with them, and Tom was that adult to me. Um I remember, you know, vividly messing around in the backyard and Tom would ignore everything that's going on and just uh you know wanted to get down on the level of a two or three-year-old and just have a good time and and that relationship that I had with him meant a lot to me as a kid, and it, and it means a lot to be able to come into the studio and, and do this song and kind of pay our own type of homage back to Credence and back to Tom.
0: Here's the Lonesome Days with their bluegrass rendition of Susie Q. Oh,
8: Q. Oh, Q.
0: you for making us yours for the hour. I'm Ryan Warner. This is Colorado Matters from CPR News.